Well, good morning all, or good morning all. I knew I, I was really trying not hard not to say that. Uh, good evening, all. Uh, let me add my welcome to, to Brian's earlier. Uh, we have a lot of visitors uh, here, a lot of family members, a lot of extended family here. So it's good to see you all uh, tonight. And, uh, you know, that last hymn, that last line of the last hymn is always a little odd, right? The last, did you notice that, right? Uh, I, I can't quote it off the top of my head except the last, like, four words. Then, then we all will stand in white and wait around. That's what it says. That's how it's describing heaven as standing in white and waiting around. Uh, but the word wait there means to serve. That's what it means. It means, like, serving God, not, not waiting around. Like, when is something going to happen here, right? That's... <laughs> That's what it sounds like. That's not what it means. <clears throat> All right. We uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Todd uh, read the first half of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2 already for us. I'm going to pick up at verse 13 and read the second half of the chapter. Let's see. beginning in verse 13. And before I read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the, the message of the gospel uh, that uh, Christ has come, uh, that he took on flesh, that he became a man, that he became like one of us, that he might bear our sin in our place, uh, that he might defeat sin and guilt for us, that he might rise again, that he might ascend to your right hand and, and, and sit there reigning over us. And uh, we thank you for the hope that we have of the resurrection and of dwelling with you face to face, serving you forever and ever. And Father, we pray that you would come and be with us now as we think about your word, as we meditate on what Christ has done. We pray that you, Father, would work that deep into our hearts and give us joy uh, give us joy in what our Savior has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 2, picking up in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, 
that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, on a good day, I know how weak I am. And on my best days, I admit it. And I'm not in control, though I certainly would like to be. Uh, that I'm not independent, though I pretend to be often. You know, I always say if I could have one superpower, uh, it would be the ability to stop time. If that's not a delusion of divinity, I don't know what is. Of course, the reason I want to be able to stop time is so that I can read. I want to read because I want more knowledge. And I want knowledge because Schoolhouse Rock taught me that knowledge is power. And I am striving then after omniscience unto omnipotence, which means I'm striving after godhood. Uh, One writer, Ed Welch, says that authentic humanness was never intended to be autonomous and self-reliant. Humans are needy by design. Apparently, I spend a lot of time trying not to be human. I don't want to be needy. I want to be powerful and strong and independent. But in so doing, I, I miss what it means to be human and I fail to understand true power. You know, Christmas, uh, among a a number of other things, is about a a redefinition of power. We gather to celebrate God's power made perfect in the weakness of a child in the manger. The world wants us to think that life works by by worldly power, right? We want to get ahead, then then we, we threaten or we intimidate or lie or steal, The world says that that force, whether money or war or arguments or subtle manipulations, that's how one protects one's own interest and position and wealth and status. But on Christmas, we're not celebrating God coming down in force to conquer the world with a sword. We're celebrating God's power made perfect in the weakness of the child in the manger. Now, the couple of stories that we've read this evening, uh, one of them fits our celebration of Christmas and the other uh, doesn't. One of the stories is of the wise men who were pagan men from the east who had come to worship the newborn king of the Jews. The other story is of the Jewish king Herod who slaughters the children of Israel in the hopes of destroying the child Jesus and securing his power. And I want to look at these stories very briefly and and just ask one question. Uh, What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus from these stories? And our outline, you can find it on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, is we'll see four things. Jesus was born a king. Jesus was born in weakness. Jesus was born to be rejected. And Jesus was born to save. You put those together and what you find is that Jesus was born a king rejected and weak to save the weak by his rejection. Jesus was born a king rejected and weak to save the weak by his rejection. And uh, we're going to move pretty quickly through those four points, but uh, we'll, we'll hit on each one of them. First, Jesus was born a king. 
And we see his kingship in the story in a number of places. We see it in the witness of the wise men and the star. Uh, the wise men testify that Jesus was born king of the Jews. They say that in uh, verse 2. And God had caused a star to appear as a heavenly sign of Jesus' birth. And, and the point is not to uh, debate the appearance of this star. Uh, Calvin points out that, that it was supernatural, the appearance of this sign. And he actually suggests, oddly, that it was more like a comet than a star. I don't know where that comes from. But uh, the, the point is not what was this phenomenon, but that there was a phenomenon and that it heralded the coming of a king. We also see Jesus' kingship in the place of his birth. Jesus was born king in the city of David, we're told in verse 5. And as the great king David was born in Bethlehem, so David's greater son Jesus is also born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. We see his kingship in the testimony of Scripture. Jesus was born a king according to Scripture. We see in verse 6, he was the ruler who comes to shepherd his people Israel. Jesus is born king of the Jews in the city of David according to the Scriptures. And of course, his kingship goes beyond uh, that of the Jewish people, uh, doesn't it? We see that right here in the wise men, the wise men who come from the east to pay him homage. But we see that more fully even at the end of the story as you read through the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus will declare in Matthew 28 that, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That we are to go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus comes as King of the Jews to rule the nations, to rule all peoples. Now this is a very familiar story and, and probably most of us in this room, maybe, maybe not all of us, but probably most of us have heard it many, many times the question is, do you, do you receive the witness of the wise men and the star and the city and the scriptures? We'll see, actually, that, that many people did not. Many people in Jesus' day who, who knew the signs better than we do, uh, they still didn't believe it. And so Jesus was born a king, but second, he was also born in weakness. We see his weakness, again, in the, in the place of his birth. Right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. You know, a great king throughout history, right, great kings are often born in, in great cities or great palaces or amidst pomp and circumstances. But Jesus is, is not like other kings. He is born in the little town of Bethlehem, of which the, the prophet actually had to say, you are by no means least. And why did the prophet have to say that? Because by all appearances, Bethlehem was the least. It was this little backwater town. A, a little tiny suburb outside of the big city that nobody had ever heard of. And that's where Jesus was born. We know from the other gospel writers, of course, that he was not only born in Jerusalem, but he was uh, it put, uh, born in a stable and placed in a feeding trough. Not kingly, not royal in any way. We see Jesus' weakness, though, also in his lack of military might. Uh, Jesus had to flee. Right? Here King Herod threatens him, and what, what does he do? Right? Great kings, they, they turn and fight. Jesus had to flee to Egypt for protection. A great king stomps out his enemies, but Joseph flees. He fled, taking Jesus with him and hiding until the danger is gone. And of course, even at the end, when, when Joseph returns, Jesus doesn't return to Judea, but he, he again hides out in Nazareth. He hides there to be safe. You see, Jesus is not a king, we see even from the beginning, who comes to fight in power. 
but a king who comes in weakness from the start. Jesus' weakness only continues. Eventually, of course, as you, as you read through the story, you know that eventually Jesus will die in weakness, naked and powerless by the world's standards on the cross. How do you feel about worshiping a king who is born and died in such weakness, whose whole life is characterized not by worldly power, not by worldly greatness, but by outward powerlessness? The world wants power like Herod, but we have a baby born to die. So Jesus is is born a king, and he's born in weakness. And third, he's born to be rejected. Jesus was rejected as king by his own people. Uh, The the political and the religious leaders here both, they they know the rumors, uh, what was going on. These wise men come to worship a newborn king. They know the scriptures as well. The people of Jerusalem know what's going on too, and they tremble with fear that Herod might be upset rather than rejoice that God might be at work. The scriptures say Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him in John 1.11. And that's what we see here. Jesus comes to his own, but the religious and political leaders of his day and the people of his nation reject him. Jesus comes, he's served by the Gentiles, these these three wise men, but those who ought to have understood, they they can't see, they're not willing to see because they're too afraid of the power of King Herod. Jesus, of course, was again continually rejected by his own throughout uh, the Gospels. We see him again and again rejected by his own people. In the very end of his life, the political and the religious leaders again will conspire together to put him to death And in the end, all will reject him, even his disciples abandon him. So Jesus is born a king, but he's born in weakness to be rejected. And of course, finally, he's born to save. Jesus was born a king, rejected and weak, to save the weak by his rejection. Jesus here is... uh, Reliving, as we read through the story of Matthew, he's, he's reliving the life of God's son Israel. You, you see that in verse 15 where the quote from Hosea says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Those words in the book of Hosea were spoken about Israel, but what we find is Matthew is saying that Jesus is the, the new and true Israel. Jesus is the one who fulfills what Israel failed to do. He, he is the one who, who was able to live up where God's people have always uh, failed to live up. And yet he's not just the, the true Israel, but he's also a new Moses. Uh, you may remember the story in, in the book of Exodus where the tyrant king Pharaoh has all of the, the babies, Israelite babies, slaughtered. Moses was miraculously saved by God in order to be the deliverer. Well, Jesus, too, is saved to be the Savior. Jesus became a helpless baby king to help the helpless. Uh, Jeremiah, many years earlier, had talked about some of these things in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's quoted in, part of it is quoted in Matthew here. I'm going to read a little more of it in Jeremiah 31, verses 7 to 17. This uh, leads up to the prophecy about Rachel weeping for her children. But I'm going to begin with verse 7. Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. And raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. 
Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant women, and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by the brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for the future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. See, Matthew quotes uh, one little verse in there about the weeping of Rachel. But there's a much larger context to it in Jeremiah, and it's actually a very positive prophecy altogether, a prophecy about the return of God's people, that though they were weeping, God would restore them. And so the point of the verses quoted in Matthew is that though there was weeping, God was about to wipe away their tears, Jeremiah 31, 13, and 16, because God had redeemed them and would therefore gather and shepherd them once more. And of course, in the story of Matthew, what we're finding is now the shepherd has come, the shepherd who would gather God's people. And while real deep mourning has taken place, the Messiah, the shepherd, has come. He will turn their mourning into joy. How will he do that? How will the shepherd turn our mourning into joy? Well, he will bring us back from the land of our enemy, according to Jeremiah 31. He will redeem us from the hands too strong for us. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that, that we will be brought back from the hand of our enemy? Well, the grip of death will let us loose, and the land of the dead will let us go. Right? The, the, the hope is that Jesus will turn our mourning into joy because he will give us hope even over the grave. That though Jesus died, he rose from the dead, so that though we die, we know that we too will rise from the dead on the last day. How does Jesus do that? How does, he, how does he do that? How does he free us from the grip of death, from the land of the dead? Well, this baby born as our king was also born in weakness. He, the, the word became flesh to partake of our humanity. He was rejected not only by man, but ultimately he was rejected by God on the cross for us. And this baby came to stand in our weakness, to pay for our sin, to be rejected by God, that we might be accepted in him. But again, death was not the end, because next comes the resurrection. Jesus conquered death. He, he defeated our enemy. He took us from the hand of the grave. Jesus overcomes all the, the worldly powers of this age through the resurrection. You know, earthly kings, they held the power of death over him, but he conquered uh, that, demonstrating the power of resurrection life. 
And so the powers of this age are proved powerless. The worst they could do to Jesus was put him to death. And he defeated even that in his resurrection. And so this baby who was born as our king, who would die as our king, who would rise as our king to shepherd God's people, to gather us now through the gospel. And he will gather us on the last day at our resurrection. See, Herod, Herod took the lives of the weak to secure his position of power. He slaughtered the innocents so that he could maintain his power as king. But Jesus gave up his position of power, even his life, to secure the life of the weak. Jesus was born a king, rejected and weak, to save the weak by his rejection, that we might find acceptance with the Father in him. Now, even as we think about these things and as we think about God's power made perfect in the weakness of the manger and the cross, the the Herod in each of our hearts still thinks true kingly power is is displayed in shows of force and cunning. We're so often fearful of anyone or anything that might threaten our positions of power. We're slow to acknowledge anyone as king or authority in my life except self. We think we must lie or threaten or intimidate and demean others in order to secure or maintain our positions. But again, the resurrection proves that the powers of this age are powerless. And it's only through the weakness of the cross that true power, resurrection power, is found. And so King Jesus calls us to humble ourselves, to repent of living by the principles and powers of this world, and to kneel before our King who was rejected and weak, that we might find acceptance and life in Him. And in so doing, we enter a life of weakness and rejection, not seeking to gain power and worldly glory, but knowing that God's power is made perfect even in our weakness through the power of the resurrected Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father, your power is truly made perfect in weakness, meaning we have nothing to offer here. We have nothing to bring And yet you, through Christ, remove our sin and give us life. Father, help us to rest, to rest in him, to rest in Jesus, to rest in the work of that baby born in the manger, to rest in his life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf. And give us joy, give us joy in those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.